Welcome. Uh, let me get myself organized here a little bit. Uh, you should have in your bulletin a uh, sermon outline. Uh, this is a very powerful tool. I was uh, noticing before I even came up that some of my kids had drawn some very wonderful cartoon animals. So I know that God's Word is inspiring people even before I come up. So um, if you have that with you, that'll help you kind of get through uh, or, or help you to follow through with the message that I'm giving today. I'm excited to be here with you. The last time I was here was to present a message uh, when I was a candidate for elder. And it's hard to believe that that was over two years ago. Uh, this message today is called The Prophet's Message to the Nation, uh, Nations. It's the 38th sermon in our series in Jeremiah. And uh, I don't know if you want to give an amen to this or not, but I think it's the next to last sermon in our series on Jeremiah. I mean, I love Jeremiah, but it's a pretty heavy book. I think you'll agree. Um, so we've learned a lot, uh, but this will be the 38th sermon in that series, Faithful Living in a Fallen World. Today we'll be looking at Jeremiah chapters 46 and 47, so if you want to open your Bibles to those chapters. And these chapters contain several highly descriptive prophecies regarding judgment on the nations of Egypt and Philistia. Even though the messages are about what is going to happen to those nations, the audience of the message is still the Israelites. The Israelites needed to be reminded that though they were facing the power of Babylon, it was really God who was behind that power and that seeking deliverance from Babylon by the might of any other nation was a pointless hope as no nation can stand against the power and will of God. It was God's will to judge Israel for their sins and his will would be done. We will see that it was also his will and grace to deliver them. Scripture tells us that he who brings the word of God has a responsibility in many ways for the lives of those who hear it. So with that in mind, I would ask that we bow our heads and allow me a moment to pray to God to ask for his blessing today. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are thankful that we have your word to lead us and guide us forward in our knowledge of you. We need your word and ask that you would speak to us through it today. Help us to understand the importance of these passages of scripture and allow the truths and lessons that it contains shape us and mold us so that we may conform more and more to your image. In so doing, may we be a reflection of you to the world around us and allow us to boldly proclaim your son Jesus both in our words and in our actions. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. As a kid growing up, I watched a lot of epic movies. I don't know if you did the same. The original Indiana Jones trilogy. The Empire... Amen, that's right. The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi, just to name a few. One epic movie I remember watching a lot as a kid, mainly because it was one of my dad's favorites, was a movie called Patton. If you've never seen it, you really must. This semi-biographical movie about one of the toughest and most controversial generals of the United States during World War II, General George S. Patton, won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, the year it came out. Actor George C. Scott won the Best Actor Award for his portrayal of Patton, though he actually stayed home to watch hockey with his family during the awards. He became the first actor to ever refuse to accept an award. One of the famous scenes in this movie involves General Patton and General Omar Bradley driving to the battlefront in Africa. Patton had just arrived in Africa to take command and hasn't yet seen this battlefield that they are driving to. They get to a crossroads and Patton orders the driver to stop the car. 
The dialogue is as follows. Patton, hold it. Turn right here. Driver, sir, the battlefield is straight ahead. Patton, please don't argue with me, sergeant. I can smell a battlefield. Bradley, he was out here just yesterday, George. Patton, it's over there. Turn right, darn it. Of course, Patton didn't say darn it, but... The next scene shows the jeep being driven into ancient ruins, semi-collapsed structures of an ancient aqueduct in time-worn marble, and what were obviously once roads now overgrown with time and age. The sun is beginning to set, giving it the feeling of a long passage of time. Patton and Bradley get out of the jeep as we hear muted, distant trumpets echoing off the fallen walls, seemingly from a time long past. Patton looks around as if he has seen it from a long way off, and then, like he's recalling a memory, he says, it was here. The battlefield was here. The Carthaginians defending the city were attacked by three Roman legions. The Carthaginians were proud and brave, but they couldn't hold. They were massacred. Arab women stripped them of their tunics, their swords and lances. The soldiers lay naked in the sun 2,000 years ago. I was here. You see, General George Patton believed that he had been reincarnated many times and that he'd been a soldier in each of those lives. He claimed to have memories of ancient battles and truly believed that he had fought in them. Patton, who considered himself to be a Christian, had a very syncretistic belief system based on the Bible and several Far Eastern texts. Syncretistic, of course, means that you kind of pick and choose from lots of different sources what you agree with and what you are going to believe in. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. It describes in many ways the people of Israel at the time that Jeremiah is delivering his prophecies and how they treated those prophecies. Messages of hope, Israel was all for it. Messages of judgment, well, Jeremiah was an annoying man, a troublemaker who should be thrown into a cistern. Like those ancient battlefields that Patton thought he could smell out, we will discuss today what are to us ancient battlefields. But unlike Patton, who believed he could look back in time, Jeremiah in this passage is being shown by God conflicts that will be. These prophecies are placed here at the end of the book of Jeremiah, but they were delivered by Jeremiah during the time that he was trying to give the inhabitants of Judah their own scared straight messages about their own eventual judgment. And again, they are be given to remind the Israelites that relying upon the nations for their deliverance and not upon God is a foolish and hopeless undertaking. And this brings us to our first point, which is a hope misplaced. Now, due to the large number of verses in our chapters today, I will be reading them all in sections, but will only focus on specific verses as we go through. Let's start by reading Jeremiah 46, verses 1 through 24, and then Jeremiah 47, 1 through 7. The Word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. 
Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. And then in the next prophecy, the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Memphis and in Tapanis. Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And they said one to another, Arise and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth because of the sword of our oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who let the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains, and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment." She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. And then finally, let's skip to Jeremiah 47. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Thus says the Lord, behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out and every inhabitant of the land shall wail. At the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels, the fathers look not back to their children. So feeble are their hands, because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? Against Ashkelon and against the seashore, he has appointed it. The word of the Lord.
There are three separate prophecies in these sections, and those were very long sections. I appreciate your listening to that and reading along. The first two concerning the nation of Egypt, and the third one concerning the nation of Philistia. In all three of these cases, we see that the nation to whom the prophecy is directed against will be contending against the nation of Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you remember, throughout the book of Jeremiah, the prophet has been warning Israel that judgment from God will be coming upon them because as a people, the Israelites have time and again turned away from God and have chased after the customs and gods of other nations. Israel has had a long history of unfaithfulness to God. One could say that pretty much its entire history from Exodus until the time of Jeremiah had mostly been a history of unfaithfulness. Jeremiah and other prophets had warned them that following other nations, that worshiping false gods, and that ignoring the covenants made with God would lead to their destruction. And yet, when faced with that destruction, when Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are sitting at the gates and laying siege to Jerusalem, Israel still places its hope in deliverance at the hands of other nations and not in God. Israel thinks that it can escape judgment through the might of nations like Egypt. Jeremiah is delivering these prophecies with the purpose of dissuading them from this notion. We read in chapter 46, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt, concerning the army of the Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. The Battle of Carchemish, which would occur in the year 605 B.C., was beyond any doubt one of those battles which shaped not just regional history, but world history. This battle occurred several hundred miles to the northeast of Egypt, near the border of what is now Turkey and Syria. The Egyptian pharaoh at the time, Nico, sent his army out to try to wrest control of that strategic city of Carchemish and assert himself as a world power against the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. In the quest for world domination, sometimes the balance of power can hinge on a single engagement. If Egypt managed to beat the Babylonian forces and control the city of Carchemish, then the ability of Nebuchadnezzar's forces to advance his armies further southwest would be greatly hampered. It would have lessened the threat of Babylon as a world power and increased the threat of Egypt as a world power. We read in verse 8 that Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, meaning Pharaoh Necho, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Nico's desire was to conquer the world. But this was not to be. We read about the great preparations that the Egyptians made for this battle. The soldiers of Egypt were battle-hardened men, familiar with the harsh realities of hand-to-hand -hand combat. These were not raw recruits, but rather cruel, harsh, fighting men. And yet we read, beginning in verse 5, they are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back, terror on every side. Going back to General Patton, he once said that courage is fear holding on a moment longer. Reading this description of the Battle of Carchemish, it would seem that the clock ran out pretty fast on the bravery of the Egyptian army. The battle-hardened soldiers see the army of Nebuchadnezzar and run in cowardly terror. In the retreat, they do not even look back. They're so focused on finding the exit door, finding safety. The fear for their lives has overtaken their training and their discipline. And all that is left to them is an instinctive desire to get away, to go on living in another day. You see, Pharaoh Necho thought in his conceit that he could take control away from Nebuchadnezzar and conquer the world. 
Like the river Nile when it floods the lands of Egypt, Necho thought that he and his army could cover the earth and dominate it. Unfortunately, what Necho forgot was that rivers might flood in great power, but eventually they all dwindle down back into their banks and all by the hand of God in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was currently the servant of God himself. We read in Jeremiah chapters 27 and 43 where God specifically refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his appointed servant to carry out his divine will. Egypt's hope to defeat Babylon was a misplaced hope because it was not really contending against the might of Nebuchadnezzar. It was contending against the will of God. Babylon was the weapon, but God was wielding it for the battle. If you look at verse 10, we see that twice God is referred to as the Lord God of hosts. Depending on the Bible version you are using, there might be lots of capital letters there. Another way to translate that title could be God of the armies of heaven or the Lord God Almighty. Does anyone remember maybe when you were kids and you had really crossed the line with your parents and you instantly knew it? There was kind of an uh-oh moment. I'm sure none of our kids you know, can remember something like that. Um, but there was an uh-oh moment where time sort of stopped and your breath caught in your throat. For me, it was always with my dad. Now, hopefully your dads were strong and loving figures in our, or I should say hopefully our dads were strong and loving figures in our lives. But on very rare occasions when I'd pushed the boundaries too far, to use the language of this passage, when I tried to let my little river surge over its banks, my dad went from being a strong, loving figure to being a bigger-than-life, frightening figure and one that I would be wise to be wary of. On those occasions, it was time to walk with a very careful step. There was nothing more frightening or more effective in changing my behavior than when my dad really got angry with me, especially when I knew it was too late. That is the sense I get from reading this passage. God had tolerated Egypt in great patience in all of its dealings with Israel and as long as it minded its place. But Egypt had gone too far, and God has now come out as the Lord God of hosts. And he is terrifying. Verse 10 continues to tell us that God's sword is out of its scabbard, and the Egyptians will become a literal sacrifice by the banks of the Euphrates. For the Egyptian soldiers, there was absolutely no chance they would win that battle, no chance whatsoever. In a fight between the Egyptians and God's appointed servant, Nebuchadnezzar, God would have the victory. And so Egypt's hope of becoming a world power was taken away. We are told in verse 12 that the nations heard of Egypt's shame. At the Battle of Carchemish, not only would the Egyptians become a stain upon the sands of the banks of the Euphrates, but the nation would be a stain on the map of world power. The, mile might, the Nile might have surged, but God quickly and decisively put it back in its place, and eventually it would dry up altogether. Egypt had come one step closer to being removed from the equation. We read about that removal in this next prophecy about Egypt. We read in verse 18 how Nebuchadnezzar would come like one with a prominence and larger-than-life appearance of Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea. Mount Tabor and Mount Carmel were two mountains that took up the landscape and would have been obvious to anyone who opened their eyes and looked up to see them. All the Egyptians had to do was look to see that the Babylonians would be bringing the fight to Egypt and that Egypt would be conquered. Verse 19 tells us that the Egyptians needed to prepare as they would be sent into exile. And we learn here too, just as in the Battle of Carchemish, that the defeat of Egypt and their inevitable exile will be at the hand of the Lord, working through Nebuchadnezzar. 
We read in verse 15 that the mighty ones of Egypt will be face down, unable to even stand, and that is because the Lord thrust them down. We know that in the presence of the Lord, every knee shall bow, and in this case, the Egyptians are truly thrust down. They have no recourse but to flee and to go into exile. It is no different for the Philistines. In the prophecy against them, beginning in chapter 47, we read in verse 4 that the Lord is destroying the Philistines, and that even though Nebuchadnezzar is God's agent in this, it is the sword of the Lord that cannot be still and is making it happen. For Egypt and for Philistia, it is a misplaced hope to think that they can defeat God's servant Nebuchadnezzar. In these prophecies concerning the eventual defeat of these nations, Jeremiah is telling the Israelites that putting their faith in these nations for deliverance from Babylon and thinking that in that way they can escape their promised judgment is also a misplaced hope. If the nations of Egypt and Philistia have no hope against the hand of God's servant Nebuchadnezzar, and if Israel cannot expect deliverance by their hands, does this mean that for Israel, then that there is no hope? The answer is yes and no. Yes, God will judge Israel and pass uh, judgment upon them, and Nebuchadnezzar will carry them off into captivity. But no, God will not leave them there. This brings us to our second point, a hope to come. Let's go back and read the passage we skipped over earlier and look at Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 25 and 26. Here we read, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings, upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. Throughout these descriptions of battles and destruction, we have heard God referred to many times as Lord and the Lord God of hosts. In verse 25, we hear God called the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is significant in this narrative when we remember who Jeremiah is delivering this message to. These prophecies have been about what will happen to Egypt and the Philistines. It is possible, of course, that these messages could have made their way through sieges and armies and made their way to Pharaoh Necho and to the Philistines. But the immediate audience, the original hearers of these messages, were the people of Israel. Israel has been placing their hope of deliverance from Babylon in the power and might of other nations, mainly Egypt, and not in the God of Israel, who is the God of all nations. God was issuing a warning to the nations in these prophecies, but in so doing, was reinforcing the messages coming to Israel concerning the power of God as the God of the whole world and the futility of the power of nations like Egypt and the Philistines against God's appointed servant. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says again in verse 25, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh, and here the emphasis should be placed, and those who trust in him. Putting their trust in Egypt was for Israel a misplaced hope. But God tells Israel that putting their trust in him is not a misplaced hope. He offers them a hope to come when he says, beginning in verse 27, But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. 
I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. You may remember that we heard verses 27 and 28 almost word for word back in Jeremiah chapter 30. Pastor Silvernell delivered a great message on that chapter in his Palm Sunday sermon. Jeremiah includes these words again in his current prophecy, and their meaning and application has not changed. The hope to come that God extends to his people, the people of his servant Jacob, is not that they will be spared from the Babylonian army. It is not that they will be spared from captivity. On the contrary, the people of God had entered into covenant with him at the foot of Mount Sinai generations before, and there were clear punishments for Israel if they were to break God's law, which they did time and time and time again. God tells them in verse 28 that as a righteous God, he will by no means leave them unpunished, that he will discipline them in just measure. The future hope that God extends to the people of his servant Jacob is not that he will look the other way, but that he will save them from far away and their offspring from the land of captivity. Israel had been looking for deliverance from the immediate consequences of their disobedience to God thinking that if the nations could save them from Nebuchadnezzar, that they would be safe. God is telling them that their judgment will happen. It must happen because of who he is and who they are, but that their future hope is way better than any temporary deliverance at the hands of the nations. God's promised redemption would be of eternal value and therefore of far greater worth than any temporary deliverance they might have hoped for. Whereas the nations would themselves be defeated and would therefore be of no use to Israel, God says to them, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you. He would not forget them in their captivity. He would, in fact, be with them in their captivity. And he promises here to bring them out of that captivity and establish them in quiet and ease. Of the other nations that Israel had foolishly placed their hope in, God promises them, or he promises that of them, he will make a full end. The prophet Ezekiel, one of Jeremiah's contemporaries, prophesied that Egypt would return from their exile and would be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never exalt itself above the nations. Even Babylon, as you will learn next week, will eventually be conquered. Neither Egypt nor Babylon would ever rise to any real prominence again. But God says to Israel, of you I will not make a full end. God is a covenant God. We should never forget that even though Israel habitually broke their promises to him, God did not and does not ever break his promises. Though Israel would seek deliverance at the hands of the nations, God had always been and always would be their only hope of salvation. And just as Israel placed their trust in things that could never deliver them and had to learn in their punishment that God alone was their redemption, we too would do well to remember the lessons of these prophecies because the future hope of Israel was also our hope to come. It has become for us our hope applied, which is our third point. Our hope applied. In all this, the question for us then becomes, how do these prophecies apply to us today? There are at least two ways. The first is that these prophecies and their lessons should cause us to look with faithful eyes upon where our hope comes from. When we look at these prophecies and realize that they were given to the Israelites to warn them about the foolishness of placing their hope in anything or anyone other than the Lord God Almighty, 
I think we have to stop and ask ourselves if we also need that warning. Maybe we are not putting our hopes in other nations as the Israelites did, though certainly in this country we do put a lot of hope in our identity as the United States of America. As great as our nation is and as much good as it has done for the world, we learn from the examples of Egypt and Philistia, Babylon, and even Israel, that even though nations serve as agents of God's purposes, there is no nation that can measure up fully to a righteous God. We learn that as blessed as we have been, and in many ways still are, we would, like Israel, be foolish to place our faith in any temporary redemptive power of this or any nation. Maybe we would put our hope in what having more money could do for us. Sometimes it seems as if there just isn't enough money to go around, and we feel that if we only had a little bit more, everything would be okay. We have some large families in this church. Praise God for that. My wife Claire and I alone have four kids to provide for. Sometimes it's tempting to think that a bigger paycheck will solve a lot of our problems. Do we put our hope in what others think about us? Do we put our hope in our social media accounts and what reactions our posts garner from others? Do we put our hope in a certain job title? Will that new promotion or new rank define you? Do we put our hope in our own righteousness? Do we put our hope in doing the most good works or showing ourselves to be the holiest that we can be in order to maintain a certain reputation? Do we put our hope in the perceived successes or failures of our children? There are a lot of things we put our hopes in every day and it's different for everyone, but like Israel and its misplaced hope in the nations, those things cannot do for us what we think they will. Like Israel, we are sometimes more concerned with the immediate problems that face us and seek out a temporary solution rather than having a faithful hope excuse me, <clears throat> in the God who has delivered us and who provided us an eternal solution. And keep in mind, when I say we, I don't mean to throw stones, but if I am throwing stones, I'm picking them up from all the stones that are around my feet that have been thrown at me that I deserve. So this is a royal we here. And so I ask today, where does our hope come from? As believers, our first and only answer must be that it comes from Jesus. Whereas for Israel, the promise at the end of Jeremiah chapter 46 of being returned from captivity, of having quiet and ease, and of no longer being afraid, applied in one sense to their return from exile 70 years after being taken forcefully into Babylon. It has application for us today in that it also speaks of the deliverance from our captivity to sin by the blood of our Savior Jesus. Sin had taken mankind out of the garden and into a spiritual Babylon. It took us an infinite distance away from a holy God, so far that we could not even hope to get back on our own, even had we wanted to. For sin had so darkened our hearts that we ran towards captivity. Sin placed mankind into bondage. Sin exiled us from God. But God promised us, he covenanted with us a savior, and God does not break his promises. The call to Israel in verse 28 to not be dismayed and the promise that God would save them from far away was fulfilled not just for them, but also for us when Jesus came to bring us back from that faraway place that sin brought us to. We couldn't make that journey on our own, but God promised us that he would be with us. Jesus came to earth in human form to be with us in our captivity, though he himself was not a captive. 
with his redemptive blood shed for us on the cross and the power of his resurrection, which conquered the serpent who held the keys of death. He opened a path to carry us home. Because of this, mankind no longer has to weep by the rivers of Babylon. Instead, we can rejoice in the faithful hope of the new Jerusalem, where we are told in Revelation chapter 21 that God will dwell with us and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is where our hope comes from. Those things we put our temporary hopes in are a result of the fears we have. But God says to us here in Jeremiah 46, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you. This is our faithful hope. The second application for us today from these prophecies lies in the fact that they provide us with a greater awareness that God concerns himself deeply with the world in which we live. We see in these prophecies that even with everything that was going on with Israel, that God saw the bigger picture. While we have been focused on, in Jeremiah primarily on the journey that was being taken by the Israelites, a local perspective, God has always had a global perspective. Israel had not been set apart as a people for themselves, but rather because they were to be an example to the world, to the nations, of what a worshiping relationship with the one true God, the Lord our God Almighty, was like. You don't make Jerusalem a shining city on a hill unless you want people to see it and be drawn towards it. God's plan of redemption, culminating in the redemptive work of his son Jesus, has always been a global plan. We read in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was not just God's New Testament plan, but God's plan all along. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In Revelation chapter 5, we read of a song being sung in heaven when the Lamb of God is given a scroll. And the words to that song say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And so if God has a global perspective for his plan of redemption, then shouldn't we? Our Savior Jesus says to us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is called the Great Commission by like Israel, who so often forgot that they were to be an example to the nations. We, myself included, sometimes treat the Great Commission like it was the good suggestion and fail to follow through with our call. The good news was not meant to stop with me. It was not meant to stop with you. If we truly believe that Jesus is our one true source of hope in this fallen world, then we must share it. None of us, if we saw someone choking on the floor in front of us, would just walk away. We wouldn't pause to consider the errands we still had to run and whether we had time to help. We wouldn't stop to wonder if the choking person really wanted our help anyway, or if they would probably rather kind of choke it out on their own. We wouldn't hesitate because of what other people might think of us trying to help the choking person. 
even if it was inconvenient to do so, even if it was dangerous to do so, I think all of us would try to help that person because we know that if we don't do something, that person will die. And yet many of us, including myself, in our approach to telling the people about their only chance for eternal life, take into consideration those very things. I can't talk to my neighbor because I have way too many errands to run right now, maybe later. That person probably wouldn't want me talking to them because they seem pretty okay right now. Maybe I should wait until later when they seem like they would be more receptive. I use that one a lot. What would my friends think if I stopped to talk to that guy on the park bench to tell him about Jesus? They might laugh at me. Was Jesus too busy to come to earth to be among us? Did Jesus let the fact that we were happy in our sins and didn't really want to change stop him from placing himself upon the cross that was rightfully ours? Did Jesus let what the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Roman-appointed governors thought of him and his message stop him from delivering it? The answer is no, of course not, and thanks be to God. God has a global perspective for his plan of redemption and is a plan that we have the privilege and duty to take part in. And though we are called to make disciples of all nations, we don't necessarily have to travel very far to do so. Many of us have representatives of those nations within walking distance of our front doors. I will close this message with a question that the Apostle Paul asked the church in Rome so long ago. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on, of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are to send? God sent Jeremiah and all the other prophets to proclaim the good news that was to come, both to the Israelites and to the nations around them. That good news has arrived, and God is sending us to spread that message to the nations and to our neighbors around us. Let us pray. God, in your wisdom, you see the world laid out before you in ways that we cannot see. From the first covenant where you promised to Adam and to Eve that a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, you have announced that you are a God who loves and cares for his creation. Though we as your creatures have from that garden until this very day put our faith and our hope in things which cannot save us, you have been relentless in your plan to redeem this world. You have loved us with an eternal redemptive love even when we would choose earthly distractions and idols and call them gods. We thank you that in your grace you promised your people that though you would not withhold judgment, we do not need to fear because you have been with us through our captivity and through the humble submission of your son Jesus who took that judgment upon himself and provided the one way that we could regain our fellowship with you. Help us this day to take your word that you offer us and so learn it and so know it and so cherish it that we would be changed by it. Help us to see the world in the light of your redemptive plan and to have a heart for the nations and the neighbors around us. We thank you for that privilege, Father, and respectfully ask for your spirit to give us the desire and the courage and your power alone to see that calling to completion. And we ask of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.